Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Excellent in the back. So my name is Scott Hansen. Um, I'm a defense attorney here in town. I also am a former member of the parish council, now the vestry. And so when I preach, we all have our own different voices, and we are blessed to have such a variety of skilled speakers. Andrew speaks like an academic. It's like I'm back in school. Um, Kevin speaks like a theologian. He speaks to my heart and my head. Um, I love the, um, the authenticity and honesty of Travis's words. And I speak like a lawyer. I'm not asking for your money now, okay? <laughs> but when I speak, it's with an eye towards persuasion. I want to convince you of something. I want to change your mind about something. I want to engage you, and I want you to, to be different as a result of what you've heard. So it's not that I just want you to sit with this, although I do want you to do that, but I ultimately want you to be something different. I want you to be changed by this experience. So Lent is a changing season. It's from the Old English uh, Lenkden, which means springtime. It also could come from the West Germanic Langetnas, say that five times fast, um, which means long days or lengthening. I like that version because Lent is this lengthening, it's this pulling of ourselves. It's a thinning process. Like when you're kneading dough, you've got to get it thin before it becomes useful. That's kind of what Lent can be like for us. In our Christian calendar, we know it as the 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter, not including Sundays. Feast days. So I think Lent's gotten a bad rap. And what we need to do is change our ways of viewing Lent. So Christmas has its carols, its parties, its gifts and feasts. Easter has bunnies, bonnets, eggs and chocolate. Lent needs to be more commercialized and commodified. <laughs> it needs marketing help. So I've got some ideas. So we need to do Happy Lent greeting cards, you know. <laughs> Could you imagine some of those messages? What about Lent parties? No food, no drink, no games, no fun. <laughs> My best idea, however, is the Charlie Brown Lent special. <laughs> Could you imagine we would watch it on every Ash Wednesday? They're all bad ideas. I like Lent the way it should be. It's not about New Year's resolutions. It's not for personal betterment. It's not for weight loss. It's not Jenny Craig. If we approach Lent like that, our eyes are focused primarily on ourselves, where they normally are. Lent is a good opportunity. It's a special time where we can be reminded communally to take our eyes off of ourselves, to look deeper, to look towards Christ. It's about leaving the rush and hurry, the haste. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal himself and our needs as we visit the desert places, which leads us to our Old Testament passage 
Deuteronomy 26. So in Deuteronomy, where we are in this particular passage is that the people of Israel have come out of finally the desert. They've come out of, prior to that, their time of of slavery of 400 years. And what's really key to remember here is as they're coming into the promised land, that wandering for 40 years, you would think after that 400-year slavery that this generation, the generation that saw the miracles of the Exodus, would be like, yes, we trust God. It's that generation that said, where's my meat? It's that generation that said, they're too big. We can't get those guys. It's that generation that was crippled by fear and idolatry. So, who did all this? It was God who did all this. If you read that 26, that chapter 26, the primary actor here is God. He's the one who's giving. He's the one who's doing. And the people of Israel are merely in that place of receipt. What does he call them to? He calls them to an act of obedience. What's the act of obedience? Give your first fruits. That's not easy. It's not the once your larder is full fruits. It's not once your barn is full fruits. It's your first fruits. It's the first best, perhaps, most luscious aspect of your produce, of your earnings. He says he does this to cultivate obedience, worship, and joy. You give me these gifts, and I give you something better. But I think he's also doing something else in this passage. He's trying to inculcate, he's trying to breed, he's trying to plant more seeds of trust. Trust and recognition of Israel's complete and utter dependence upon God. I gave you this land. It comes from my hand. All these fruits, all everything, everything good in your life comes from me. I'm the author and perfecter of your faith. I'm the giver of all good things. So, this speaks to me because here in my hand is my tithe check. I have a complicated relationship with money. Some months it really hurts to give. You don't understand what I could do with that money. It's mine. I earned it. It's my precious. (laughs) It's my idol. If I've got this, I don't need God. In fact, I'm my own God. Wow. We don't guard our hearts. We fall so quickly into sin. We fall so quickly into hard-heartedness. 
we fall into wrong belief. We fall into selfishness and greed. Because again, all of these things, they all come from God. It's out of his goodness that we can live and breathe and have our being. Israel, sadly, in Deuteronomy, and you see in the rest of the Old Testament, they ultimately fail. The prophets call out from the wilderness, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Joel, my personal fave, Habakkuk. To name a few, they cry out to us as well. They re- their, their cry is repent, turn to God, hear his voice, listen, love, and obey him. Mend your ways, for the kingdom of heaven is near. God sought to teach obedience to the children of Israel in the desert. But he was met with rebellion, stubbornness. Like a cake not yet ready in the oven, after that 40, pardon me, 400 years, he put them back in for another 40, so hoping they would learn. Let the rebels die. Try again. Next generation. And even though he led, loved, and clothed them in the wilderness, they still refused his best gift. And that was himself. So that brings me to the the gospel passage. Luke. I was tempted to make it all about this passage, but I feel like it's been done a lot. So I wanted to bring in the old and the new. So one of the ways to think about Jesus, and this is just kind of a good idea to keep these models of Jesus in Scripture, sometimes Jesus is sort of representative of the new Israel, and he has almost a history that sort of um, mimics or even amplifies the history of Israel. He's also represented in Scripture as a model and a teacher, a rabbi, and he's also represented as a savior and king. In the Luke passage, we've got to remember what's happened just before this. He's just come out of the waters of baptism with John the Baptist in the wilderness. Good place to be. Remember the children of Israel? They came through the Red Sea. They had their baptism. They came out of Egypt. Jesus came out of Egypt. Abraham came out of Egypt. A lot of good comes out of Egypt. They had their 40 years. He has his 40 days. Before they could enter into the promised land, the people of Israel, the people, they had to go through that preparation time in the desert. Jesus, as he's entering into his ministry, has to go into this preparation time of Lent. So he goes into the desert. What's significant about the desert? It's both geographic, it's a place, and it's internal. It's around us and within us. It's a harsh, barren place filled with rock, sand, refuge, pardon me, refuse. Demons, the jinn, live there. A place of thieves, bandits, rebels, baptizers, prophets, and angels. It's a place of isolation, a place of renewal, reflection, refinement, insight. It's a place of littleness. It's a place where you can hear the still, small voice of God. It is brutal. 
It's a place of awareness, of thirst, hunger, hope, want, need, desire, revelation. It's ultimately a place of truth and preparation. And we don't like going there. We need to create such places and spaces in our lives. We are too comfortable with the noises and distractions of our lives. We allow no space for silence and are opposed to the empty landscapes of internal reflection. And when I say we, I mean me. Because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable being shaped by the potter's loving hands. It's uncomfortable to bear our naked skin, like on the first day of a beach vacation. It stings, it hurts. The lack of light pulls our hearts to him, like the houseplant whose leaves seek the sun's direction. Our hearts, our true selves, cry out to him. But we take the safe path. We take the path of fear, thus avoiding the refiner's flame. We douse the embers, allowing the dry brush and fallen limbs to clog the forest floor of our lives. We're full, but we're empty. Christ, on the other hand, was obedient and unafraid. He was the true man who engaged with courage his enemy and allowed the desert to teach him. Getting back to our story, we've got our, our cast of actors. It's kind of small. Jesus and the devil. It's a confrontation. It's a harrowing story. It's like a classic Western. You got a bad guy and a good guy. You've got the devil who I picture in my mind is like Lee Van Cleef. If any of you knows, know that guy. All right, smaller guys, you know him. And Jesus, he would be played in my mind by a young Clint Eastwood in his, in his prime. They're squared off, right? In the middle of the desert, it's a true battle of eternal consequences, universally significant. But they're not fighting with cult, single-action armies, or Winchesters. They're fighting in the spirit. Jesus responds to each of the devil's taunts and attacks with the word. With the word and with obedience. The living, breathing logos lives to obey the will of the Father. He refutes the lies of the devil with truth. And what's interesting, the devil needs to be more careful with the texts that he chooses. He chooses Psalm 91, I don't know why. But if he would have continued to read in Psalm 91, he would have had a foretaste of what was to come. So he reads that, or he quotes to Jesus, that, that passage about, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He tries to entice him with power, comfort, safety. If he would have kept reading, he would have read, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the serpent. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. 
He didn't quote that part. Sin came into the world through disobedience, an unchecked appetite. It was the apple incident, if you remember. Israel continued this trend with its faithless demands in the desert. In Numbers 11, they cry out for food. They want meat. They want, they want more than what God has given them. They know what's best. And so God, he says, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat. And he rains quail down upon them. He says, you're not going to just eat it like an angry parent for one or two days. You want pizza? You're going to get it every day. <laughs> he says, you're going to eat it for 60 days until it literally comes out of your ears. And on top of that, when he's brought this grumbling, he wants to respond in fire. Because that's what happens in the desert. Things get burned in the desert. So he gives them what they want, and they're still not happy. They're still not satisfied. Sound like anybody you know? Jesus, however, overcame, and he broke this pattern. He broke it and showed us a new path. He didn't have a problem with his appetite. In the face of temptation, he was able to say, man does not live by bread alone. He could have turned that stone into some sort of mealy, tasteless bread, but he chose not to. He chose to act in obedience. He valued obedience and relationship more than transitory pleasure. Hunger always returns. Some notes about our enemy, the devil. I'll tell you what he is. He's an uncreator. He's a liar. He's a cheater. He's a killer. He's a thief. He's a distorter. He is finite. He is not infinite. He is limited by space and time. It is not a dualism that we believe in. God is supreme. The devil, however, does bide his time. But yet, he knows how this story turns out. He knows his Bible. We need to remember that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, encourages us to equip ourselves with the whole armor of God as we enter into this battle in Lent. And no temptation has, has seized you except that which is common to man. And God, who knows you, he will provide a way out for you. He's compassionate. He loves you. So Lent and fasting, these things are not the path to sound heady of philosophical negation. This Christian walk is not Buddhism. It's not about emptying oneself so that you can be empty. Christianity is a, is a relationship that's based on blessing, ultimately. A father wants to give his child good gifts, but we need to be in a posture to receive them. 
I don't give my 12-year-old keys to the car. I don't give my six-year-old a loaded firearm without some basic training. Bad choices. That's not our father. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be taken from you? Is that how that verse goes? No, all these things will be added unto you. It is a message of gift giving and receiving with a slight condition. Seeking first God's kingdom, obeying me, the Father. The Father has good gifts. Romans 10 brings this all together. Romans 10 speaks to the kingship of Jesus. It speaks to the consummation. It takes place, it takes us to the place of victory beyond the cross, beyond the mourning and pain, but to Jesus recognized as who he is, the Son of God. Verse 11 and 13 For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the kingship of Jesus. He wants to bless us with good things here and good things to come. But we've got to be ready for his blessings. We have to learn to be like lilies of the field. Christ talks about those lilies. In the words of Hannah Whittall Smith, to be one of God's lilies means an interior abandonment of the rarest kind. It means that we are to be infinitely passive and yet infinitely active also. Passive as regards self and its workings, active as regards attention and response to God. It means that we must lay down all the activity of the creature as such and must let only the activities of God work in us and through us and by us. Here's the key. Self must step aside to let God work. That's really the lesson of Lent, isn't it? I exhort you through the disciplines of prayer, fasting, and repentance to invite the Holy Spirit to ignite your soul, transform your heart, and renew your mind in the desert lands. There are no shortcuts in the desert. Let's pray. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. But give rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, O Lord and King, grant me to see my own transgressions and not to judge my brother. 
for blessed art thou unto ages of ages. Amen.